You are listening to the sermon podcast from St. Michael and All Angels Church in Savannah. We are an Episcopal congregation in the Diocese of Georgia, and you can find out more about us by visiting www.stmichaelsavannah.com. I think I scared the 8 o'clock congregation to death when I moved this out here uh, this morning. Uh, one of them looked at me and said, did we need to pack a lunch? <laughs> I just have some stuff that I want to say that I wasn't entirely sure I could rely on my memory alone to get right. So um, I have some stuff to help me along. Um, <clears throat> it's been quite a week, hasn't it? Yep. Um, it I've been reflecting a lot on what has happened since the last time that we were here last Sunday, and some of it has been wonderful and some of it has been horrible. Uh, Last Wednesday, uh, I shared with you the really good news that Scott and Sarah Gray, who are parishioners at 8 o'clock, had given birth to their first son, Declan. It's a very joyful moment. Monday was the 4th of July. Uh, with, uh, I'm sure, people eating too much and um, celebrating the gifts that God has bestowed upon us in this country. Um, At least I hope that's what some of the celebration was about on Monday. Uh, I know for a lot of folks, the, the thing on Monday that we were the most worried about was how badly the fireworks were going to upset our dogs uh, Monday night. At least that's what people talk the most about. Um, and then things took a turn as the week went on. And they took a bad turn with shootings in Baton Rouge and in Minneapolis and then the next day in Dallas. And for a lot of us, the fear of fireworks and dogs barking went right out the window. You should probably know uh, that at this point, uh, the sermon that I have intended to preach has gone through three different versions as the week unfolded before I finally ended up where I ended up yesterday because I realized some of what I was going to say to you probably would not have been well received because I was angry and worried. But nevertheless, what what we find this week, uh, as we gather here this morning, is the gospel reading appointed for today. The parable of the Good Samaritan. Of course, it would be the parable of the Good Samaritan after the week that we have had. Maybe that's a good thing. I think Jesus has something to tell us about what we should do because I I don't know about for you all but part of the reason that I was angry and anxious uh, towards the end of the week wasn't just about the shootings and the killings themselves it was about our responses to them as a people and as a country and I'm sort of at the point where I can't take that anymore um And I think maybe that's what, at least for me, the parable of the Good Samaritan has to say to us. Now, um, this is probably one of the most well-known, the most well-known parable that Jesus has told. 
maybe the parable of the prodigal son competes with it in that regard. But that, that language, the image of the good Samaritan has worked itself into our collective uh, subconsciousness around this country and our culture. Um, that has nothing to do with church. I mean, virtually everybody is, has some idea of that phrase, being a good Samaritan. I mean, there, there's even an auto club of RV enthusiasts who have that sticker, right? On the back of their RVs, good Sam. And I think when we hear it, uh, we tend to think of a good Samaritan most of the time as just anybody who stops to help somebody in trouble. That's not bad, but that's not what the parable of the Good Samaritan is about at all. It's much more than just stopping to help somebody who's in trouble. So uh, let's, let's look, if, if, if we can, uh, at, at this parable. Um, and I'll, I'll, I will give you fair warning. Some of this will sound like a continuation of last week. Um, that, that's intentional. I just didn't think y'all listened. So uh, <clears throat> experience tells me that. Uh, I'm kidding. That, that part's a joke. Uh, so uh, what we are confronted with this morning is a lawyer who stands up to test Jesus. Now, I don't know if we have any attorneys in the room this morning. We did at 8 o'clock. Uh, if, if we do have attorneys in the room, this is not about you. It's not that kind of lawyer. So when you hear it, uh, do not start thinking of the lawyers that you know and dislike. Um, a, a lawyer in Jesus' time was an expert in the Torah, which was the law. But not just sort of law in the judicial sense, but in the governing principles of the way that the people of God were supposed to live. They were experts whose responsibility it was uh, to teach the people, this is what God says. This is how God says we are supposed to live. This is the covenant that God has established between God and us that defines our relationship and tells us who we are and how we ought to live. And so today we have an expert in that who stands up before Jesus and says, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In other words, in our language, what do I have to do to make sure that I get to go to heaven? What is required of me since you, wise teacher, have seemed to say different things than what we who study the law thought was the case. You said this is a new way of understanding our relationship with God, so then please tell me, what have I got to do? How do I make sure that I'm in? And y'all should know by now uh, that when Jesus is asked a question like that, he never gives you an easy answer. Mainly because Jesus... Jesus never gives any of us an easy answer to anything. So what does he say to the lawyer? Well, <laughs> oh, expert in the law, what does the law say? What do you read there since you know so much about it? The lawyer said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and you should love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, good job, gold star. Got it right. Do that, and you will live. 
you will live. He didn't really say anything about inheriting eternal life or inheriting the kingdom of God, but you will live. You will have the life that God intends for you to have if you will just do those two things. And then Luke says, wishing to justify himself, he asked Jesus, but who is my neighbor? There we go. Who do I have to love? Who do I have to include in that definition of neighbor? And who can I leave out? What's the bare minimum? How much do I have to do to get in? Who does this include? Who does it exclude? And there I think we should perk up and pay attention. Because what the lawyer is doing already is exactly what we are doing right now, which is drawing the lines between us and them. The people who are in, the people who are out. And so Jesus, uh, in his wonderful way, uh, doesn't even answer that question directly, but he tells him a story. He said, well, now listen, a man uh, is going down the road to Jericho. And on the way, he falls into the hands of robbers who beat him and strip him and leave him for dead. Now, curiously, these, these are a particular kind of robbers or bandits. Um, there's only one other time that this word appears in the Gospels. You know where it is? The crucifixion. These are the kind of criminals that Jesus is hanged in between. These, these are not people who hold you up at gunpoint in broad daylight or at sword point, as the case probably was then. Uh, these are people uh, who lie in wait along dark roads to ambush people as they travel by and attack them from, from out of nowhere. So Jesus says this man falls into their hands, they leave him for dead, and he's lying there face down in the road. And then, as it happens, along comes a priest uh, traveling down the road who sees him lying there and moves over to the other side of the road and goes on about his way. And then after that, after the priest, there comes a Levite, the priest's assistant in the temple. Sort of an acolyte, if you will also comes along, sees the man lying in the road, and he goes to the other side and goes on about his way and leaves the man lying there. Now, this, just as I told you at the beginning, you, you, you can't use this parable to pick on lawyers. You can't use it to pick on priests either. We're, we're not bad in the story. It's easy to say, well, those were bad people. Well, there's what appears to be a dead body lying in the road. Priests and Levites can't touch dead bodies. Because to do that would render them unclean and they would not be able to perform their obligatory service in the temple. The service that they are supposed to provide to God and to their community. They're really not doing the wrong thing. They're not breaking any rules here. They're doing what the law requires of them. It just might not have been the best thing to keep that part of the law at that moment. And then Jesus says, and so after them comes a Samaritan. Uh, 
Now, for the Jews, we know about the Samaritans. They're, they're the bad guys. Uh, they, they believe the wrong things. They worship the wrong ways. Uh, they're going to hell. They're terrible people. We should have nothing to do with them. In fact, they really shouldn't be allowed down here with us. Because they, them, well, they're bad. So the Samaritan comes along. He finds the man lying in the road. And what does he do? He stops and cares for him. He cleans and bandages his wound. He, he, wounds. He, he picks him up and puts him on his own animal and then he takes him to a nearby inn to a Jewish innkeeper. And he says, just take care of him. Help me with this. Here's some money. If this isn't enough, don't worry. I'll, I'll, I'll pay you whatever it costs. I got this. Now, stop and think for just a minute about, about this Samaritan um, <clears throat> who shouldn't be where he is. While he's kneeling over the dead, the seemingly dead body, taking care of him, if another Jewish person comes along and sees that, what are they going to assume? He did it. So the risk is great. You see what I'm saying? This is not just helping somebody who's got a flat tire. I mean, this is serious business here. And so after painting this picture, Jesus says to them, all right, says to the lawyer, okay, so now, of those three, which one was a neighbor to the man in need? And the lawyer's like a dadgummit. And he's kind of painted into a corner at this point. It's like, well, I guess it was the one who showed him mercy. <clears throat> Jesus said, yeah, you're right. Now, go and do likewise. What Jesus does in that parable is to do away with the distinction between us and them and turn it into we. All of us. We. Together. There is no us. There is no them. And if there is no us and no them, uh, then there is no way to point the finger and to blame and to accuse them for being in the wrong. That's what I've seen from us as a people this week. That's what disturbs me so much. How quick we are, um, given all of the terrible things that are happening, to decide who is right and who is wrong in each situation and then to blame them. We perfected the art of, of doing this. Um, we see it in virtually every aspect of our society, nowhere more so than in national politics uh, at, at the moment. I mean, I remember, believe it or not, I, I, some of y'all will, will get this, I, I remember when politicians were running for office and they told us, this is what I want to do for you. This is why I would like you to put your trust in me and to let me to this office because this is what I want to give for you. Now what do we do? Look how awful he is. She's just crooked and corrupt. You can't believe anything that she says. He's a racist and a bigot who hates Muslims and wants to run all the immigrants out of the country. Blame and bitterness and accusation. Those are the marks of us and them. And it is a dark and dangerous road for us to travel down. But that's where we're headed. What Jesus shows us 
is that there is no solution to what ills us by seeing the world in terms of them and us. There is no hope for us in knowing who is right and who is wrong. There is no salvation in blame and in bitterness. <clears throat> now, m most of y'all know my, my three children, right? How wonderful they are. Um, you know, they're, they're near perfect in almost every way. They are intelligent and good looking, all of them. Thank God for their mother. <laughs> but uh, because they're brother and sister, brothers and sisters living together under one roof, from time to time they disagree. Shocking, I know. Uh, they squabble, they argue, because they're people. And from time to time, they come to Christine or me to resolve their differences when they're really ticked off at one another. Um, most of the time, we try really, really hard to stay out of their business. And we will just tell them, I don't want to hear it. Go, go work this out for yourselves. We think that those are important skills for them to develop. We don't want to take sides. But sometimes, it goes beyond just a squabble or a disagreement. And sometimes they just get nasty with each other. And when that happens on occasion, we reach a point where I reach a point, at least let me speak for myself, where I'm just not going to listen to it anymore. And what I want is for it to stop. And at that point, I don't care who's right or who's wrong. Because even the one who appears to be in the right, who comes to me with their legitimate grievance, I know that they are not quite as pure as they are painting themselves out to be. <laughs> and the one they say is in the wrong is not purely evil either. And even if in this one case the aggrieved party hasn't done something wrong, they've done something wrong somewhere else. Or they're gonna. It's just a matter of time. And at that moment, all I really care about is that my children are at each other's throats and I want it to stop. I don't care who's right. I don't care who's wrong. What I care about is I want them to see one another as brother and sister and to recognize the gift that they have of being in a loving family. And at that point, that's the only thing that I care about is that my children are not fighting with each other, that they're not being hateful towards one another. And what I think is that that might just be where God is with us as a people at this moment. Stop arguing over who's right and who's wrong. Stop pointing fingers and blaming the other because all that God wants is for us to recognize that we are brothers and sisters. And to see the blessing that God has bestowed upon us as members of his family. To realize that that is who we are. And in we, there is no room for them and us. It is all we. Now, how do we get to that point where we stop seeing the distinction between us and them, where we turn away 
from blame and bitterness. I think in this, we can turn to 12-step programs to find a way forward. There's an adage that I have a love-hate relationship uh, uh, with NAA that says this, whenever I am disturbed or upset, there is something the matter with me. Whenever I am disturbed, whenever I am upset, something is wrong with me. I have a part in it. And if I want to not be angry or bitter, I don't have to worry about what part the other person plays. I have to look at myself and say, what is it about me in this moment that is out of whack? Us and them says, look for the problem, the blame, the solution in them. Because if they change their ways, then everything will be right. If they come over to my way of thinking, then we'll all get along and, and everybody will be happy. <laughs> Guess how well that works? At least in my experience, uh, it doesn't. And if we're waiting for other people to change their minds or their behaviors to make us less angry and less bitter, it's going to be a long wait. And things will continue to get worse and worse. Because solving the problems that afflict us, the solution doesn't lie in blame and bitterness, in pointing fingers at them. The solution lies within us. And it starts with self-examination, with confession, and with repentance. When we are willing to look openly and honestly and fearlessly at our own shortcomings, at our own wrongdoings, when we are clear about, oh, this is who I am and this is what I have done, and yet despite all of that, God has forgiven me and God calls me his own beloved, then we realize we don't have any moral high ground to stand on. To point, to point the finger of blame at somebody else because we are not so pure and they are not purely evil. I, I know a lot, of, uh, a lot of my colleagues and a lot of other good Episcopalians um, have been talking a lot in light of recent events uh, about our baptismal covenant, about the promises that we make as sort of a, a roadmap for the way forward. I, I don't want to disagree with them. I think, I think they're right. Um, if you want to see the baptismal covenant those promises, they're on page 304 and 305 in the Book of Common Prayer, but don't look them up now. Look them up later. Because I want to suggest that there's another sacramental covenant at this point that might be more helpful for us. And that is the marriage covenant. Because in a marriage, in the covenant formed when two people marry one another, we are supposed to see in that relationship the, 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 the pinnacle, the model for what all human relationships should be like. Where there is no us or them, but there is we. 
people bound together in mutual affections of love and of forgiveness. These are the prayers that we, uh, we say right after the marriage vows are exchanged. And I think they point us towards a different path than the dark road of blame and bitterness. This is on page 429. <clears throat> Eternal God, give us wisdom and devotion in the ordering of our common life, that each may be to the other a strength in need, a counselor in perplexity, a comfort in sorrow, and a companion in joy. Grant that our wills may be so knit together in your will, and our spirits in your spirit, that we may grow in love and peace with you and with one another all the days of our life. Give us grace when we hurt each other to recognize and acknowledge our own fault and to seek each other's forgiveness and yours. And make our lives together a sign of Christ's love to this sinful and broken world that unity may overcome estrangement, forgiveness heal guilt, and joy conquer despair. If we continue to face the problems that plague us with an us and them perspective, we follow the road to blame and to bitterness. A road marked by estrangement, guilt, and despair. But if we choose instead not to blame, if we choose instead to see the world as we, as blessed brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of God, then the road that we take is a different one. And it is a road on which there is no room for people to lurk and lie in ambush. And instead, it is a road enlightened by unity, forgiveness, and joy. Amen. Amen.